Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. This podcast is graphic and deals with mature subject matter. You're listening to True Crime Chronicles. People in Arkansas still want to know about these two boys. Now, this case has captivated Arkansans for a quarter of a century. The mystery of the boys on the track still very much alive. For True Crime Chronicles, I'm Jessica Knoll. And I'm Will Johnson. Jessica, this week we are bringing our listeners another story from the South. We've been in Texas for a few weeks, and this time we're heading into Arkansas, right? Right, Will. So this story is actually going to take us near Little Rock, Arkansas. And this case has a little bit of everything, corruption, drugs, missing case files, you name it. The, uh, the whole nine yards. Well, let's get right into it. This story is The Boys on the Tracks. Larry Kevin Ives and Don Henry liked to hunt, especially at night. On August 23rd, 1987, the two teenagers head out for a night of hunting. Well, it was 17-year-old Kevin Ives, and it was his best friend, 16-year-old Don Henry, and it was just after midnight in August, August 23rd of 1987, and they headed out to go night hunting in a wooded area near Don's home in a town called Bryant, Arkansas. Don Scott is a news anchor at THV 11 in Little Rock, Arkansas. She's worked at the CBS station for 20 years. She grew up in Bryant, Arkansas, and was just 16 years old herself on that August night more than three decades ago. The boys were, you know, popular students. They were loved. They had a lot of friends. Um, They were best friends. They were out hunting, doing fun things in the summertime. But by the next morning, the boys aren't home. Worried, Don's father calls Kevin's mom, Linda, asking if they're at her house. But she hasn't seen them. Around noon, Linda gets a second call. The boys have been found. But then she gets the horrific news. Her son and his friend are dead. She learns that their bodies have been found on a set of train tracks between Benton and Alexander, Arkansas. A 75-car, 6,000-ton cargo train. It was making its regular night run to Little Rock, and it was traveling, oh, I don't know, about 50 miles an hour. And the train approached. The engineer noticed something, and as they got closer, he realized that it was two boys and they were laying motionless and he couldn't stop the train in time. And the boys were run over by the train and killed if they weren't killed before that. It was as shocking as it sounds. Two well-liked local teenage boys run over and killed by a train. Their bodies dragged for almost a mile along the rusty train bed. You know, it happened in the middle of the night and these are just two precious teenagers who had a future and a life ahead of them. The engineer sees the two boys lying side by side on the tracks, covered with a tarp before the impact. But before he can bring the train to a screeching halt, it's too late. There was also, uh, supposedly, the train's conductor stated that they were partially covered with a light green tarp, and that that tarp was never found. 
The missing tarp is the first strange detail in the case, and there would be more in the weeks and months ahead. A 22 rifle owned by one of the boys is also found lying next to them on the tracks. It was creepy. I mean, this is my hometown. Everyone knew about it. Everyone had heard about it. And, you know, I, of course, was a teenager, didn't know what to think, just knew that it was awful, that it was absolutely awful. I mean, we all knew about it. Anyone and everyone who lived here knew about the boys on the tracks. An autopsy is performed, and there's no indication of foul play. It's determined that the boys were on the tracks on purpose. Suicide. Well, at first, the local officials treated the incident like an apparent suicide. Even the medical um, examiner ruled the boy's death as an apparent suicide, despite the fact that all four parents disputed that. Um, The medical examiner at the time claimed the boys had smoked enough marijuana and fell asleep on the tracks. Mara Leverett, a newspaper journalist, tells the disturbing tale in her book, The Boys on the Tracks. Dr. Fami Malik, who was the the head of the state crime lab who did the autopsies, ruled that the boys had smoked themselves into a marijuana-induced stupor, laid themselves out on the tracks, and been run over by a train. So it was suicide or accidental. But either way, no sign that anyone else is involved. Um, their parents absolutely and vehemently disagreed with that, and it pushed them to conduct their own investigations. Ultimately, a second medical examiner found that they'd smoked the equivalent of one or two marijuana cigarettes, not 20. And the idea that they, you know, fell asleep or or passed out on the train tracks, I mean, I'm not sure that that could happen in the manner in which their bodies were laying. I mean, they were parallel side by side, inside the tracks. I mean, it doesn't ring true for me that that would be the the initial theory. The boys' parents questioned the suicide ruling, petitioning the court. As a result, they received permission to get a second opinion. And after not one or two, but three autopsies, the initial findings are debunked. There was even a third autopsy uh, done, and that found evidence of stab wounds on one of the boys, Don Henry, and Kevin Ives. It looked like he had a rifle, and he may have been crushed. His skull may have been crushed by his own rifle. The bodies were exhumed. Turned out, no, there were stab wounds. There were blows to the head that the boys were dead when they were laid down on the track. Dr. Joseph Burton is a leading medical examiner from Georgia. On April 5th, 1988, the boys' bodies are exhumed and Dr. Burton is brought in to take another look at the bodies and the evidence from the scene. What I found in the autopsy was evidence of two boys run over by a train, but then I found a pattern injury on the face of uh, of Ives and I found a penetrating stab wound on the back of the other boy. And these, one of these was at least visible in the autopsy photos Dr. Malik had taken. What was interesting is I asked to see the clothing and on the shirt that allegedly had been worn by the boy that had the stab wound, there was a defect in the fabric consistent with the stab wound. And there was a, you know, a rifle found next to the boys. They'd been allegedly deer hunting with a light. And um, there's a plastic plate on the butt of a lot of rifles. This plastic plate measured a little over four inches long and about an inch, inch and a quarter wide. 
there was an abrasion on the face of the other boy that measured an inch and a quarter long. I mean, an inch and a quarter wide and about uh, the same length as the butt plate on the uh, rifle. So uh, the new autopsy showed that there was a pattern injury on the face of one boy consistent with where someone might have struck him and knocked him unconscious and a wound on the back of the other boy which may have resulted in him being unconscious, and that would explain why they didn't get off the track when the train came. Dr. Burton also looks at the toxicology reports in the case file. I looked at the levels of marijuana found in their blood, uh, tetrahydrocannabinol. I reviewed these levels with several toxicologists around the country. No single toxicologist or medical examiner that looked at these results with me felt that they would be sufficiently high enough to cause the boys to be unconscious or to be unaware of the uh, horn being blown by the train or the vibration of the train coming down the track. You know, to do three autopsies and have three different opinions, imagine being, you know, their parents. It, it would be so upsetting that it, it really was a botched investigation for the families of these two boys, of Kevin Ives and Don Henry. Ready to start talking to your kids about financial literacy? Meet Greenlight, the debit card and money app that teaches kids and teens how to earn, save, spend wisely, and invest with your guardrails in place. Parents can send instant money transfers, automate allowance, and more. Plus, keep an eye on spending with real-time notifications. Join more than 6 million families building healthy financial habits together on Greenlight. Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com slash odyssey. The findings are startling when compared to the original autopsy. It's the first real indication that someone else was out there in the woods that night and that the boys were murdered. The difference was is that I did not conclude that the boys died accidentally or that they necessarily died from just being run over by a train, as Dr. Malik did. I concluded that they died from injuries that included injuries from being run over by a train, but they may have been rendered unconscious or even killed by other injuries prior to being run over by the train. And at that point, a grand jury was involved and the cause of death was then changed to a definite homicide. But why would someone kill two teenage boys in the middle of the night in such a gruesome way? People start to wonder if maybe they'd stumbled across something that perhaps they weren't supposed to see. And the case takes a much darker tone. And there was tons of cocaine flowing into Arkansas. This is 1987. Lots of powder cocaine wow. coming into the state at that time. And nobody was quite sure why. And there was a belief that maybe these boys had been had witnessed something or had thought that they were maybe going to participate in something. Nobody knows what went on. The drug trade was no joke back then. And nearby Mena, Arkansas, was a major point of distribution for cocaine cowboys. In the town called Mena, which would be a couple of hours west of Bryant, where these murders happened, there was a drug operation um, at the airport there run by Barry Seal. Now, Barry Seal worked for a Colombian drug cartel, the Medellin cartel. The theory is that he was running a drug hub and dropping cocaine shipments um, near that airport and would earn as much as a one a million or more than a million, 1.3 million, I think is what I read. Um, so that was, he was um, later murdered by the cartel and but he had cooperated with the CIA and given had given up that information. And so one theory is is that similar drug operations were happening near where the boys 
bodies were, and that possibly they stumbled upon a drop, a drug drop, and witnessed it and were murdered as a result. The largest cocaine operation, smuggling operation in the country, run by Barry Seal, was headquartered in Mena, Arkansas, at the little airport there. It had been in Louisiana. Federal authorities knew about it, but then he moved it to Mena. Conspiracy theories begin to swirl as a possible drug connection comes into the picture with ties to a Colombian cartel and rumors of ties to more extensive and well-known cases of government corruption. It has been confirmed was connected to Iran-Contra. So it becomes involved with a lot of big conspiracy theories. And all of this is partly why Linda Ives has been left wondering. Nobody, Nobody knows just how deep this is. Linda Ives, Kevin's mother, has stated she's convinced the boys witnessed some kind of drug drop or operation and were captured and interrogated for information they didn't have, that they were simply at the wrong place at the wrong time. She believes they were the victims of a cover-up, that if the case were solved, too many sordid details would come to light. In the next shocking turn of events, the prosecutor involved in the case, the man who had promised the family he'd uncover what happened, faces charges himself in 1997. The, the third thing was that Dan Harmon, the prosecuting attorney down there at the time, who pronounced to everyone, including Linda Ives, don't worry, I'm going to solve these. We're going to hold grand jury investigations. State police are going to be involved. Nothing will be unturned. 25 years later, nothing led anywhere except that we know now that Dan Harmon himself was ultimately indicted on drug charges. Yeah, his name was Dan Harmon, and he was the prosecuting attorney for the district that that town Bryant is in. He uh, represented the Ives and Henry families, and he was later convicted of uh, racketeering, conspiracy, extortion, drug possession with intent to distribute. Um, He was handed an 11-year prison sentence, and, you know, a writer um, of a book um, in this case who's local here had said that that proved to the boys' parents that their son's deaths had at least occurred in an environment of local corruption. And I think that's very true. Rumors continue to circulate and take on a life of their own. But knowing the facts as she does today, Don Scott isn't surprised that the conspiracy theory stretched all the way to the governor's mansion. There's no evidence that the Clintons were involved in any manner, but that was the backdrop and that was the environment at the time of these boys' deaths. When there's a drug cartel running an operation a few hours west and there are millions of dollars involved, I mean, it does make you pause. Other details come to light over time, details that only add fuel to the firestorm of conspiracy theories. There was a man in fatigues obscene a week before the boys died in military fatigues spotted um, near the train tracks um, a week before that and apparently an officer tried to stop that man the man opened fire and ran off and on the same night the boys died there was a similar looking man dressed in military fatigue spotted nearby as well I don't know the significance of that or if there is any at all but it does make you wonder people were definitely wondering so many angles and storylines that weren't there early on. It's filled with just so many rabbit holes. Um, I mean, you, you, you've you got talk of a drug lord running 
cocaine shipments, you know, in the area. Um, you've got, you know, a prosecutor later convicted on drug charges. Um, it's a case that a lot of people wanted to keep quiet and not a lot of information, you know, came out at times. The Saline County Sheriff's Office says the investigation is plagued with challenges. Over the years, different agencies have taken on the case. Numerous lead investigators have come and gone. Potential witnesses have withheld information, and several have died. And as it stands today, the grand jury testimony and crime scene photos have mysteriously vanished from the case file. Lieutenant Mike Frost is with the Saline County Sheriff's Department. There are not a whole lot of leads uh, new leads that come in. I do not have a detective assigned to the case. I am the one who goes through the case. I've been through the case files and try to follow up on things that I can find in the case file from that time frame. Anytime you're dealing with a homicide that has any type of drug ties to it, you always run into those problems where you got a lot of different stories. Lieutenant Frost is well aware of all the conspiracy theories, the rabbit holes, He knows all about the drug trade in the 80s and rumors of a connection to the drug trade in nearby Mena, Arkansas. There's nothing that I can see that has tied Mena to uh, this case. That's not saying that it wasn't. So many of the people who were uh, as witnesses have since passed. And like I said, like we can say, a lot of people were murdered, which they may have been. They're all up people who died of natural causes. He certainly can't say why the first medical examiner made the ruling that he did. It would be pure speculation as to why he made that determination. That, like I said, he was not on the tracks. Uh, he was not a part of that. As far as what his part played in his ruling, I can't say. He does leave us a clue, a hint, that maybe he has more on the case than we know, even after all this time. When I know of one individual that I would love to be able to talk to that has been missing for many years, that very well may be tied into it, but he has never been found. In 2012, 25 years after the murders, nearly 100 people gather for a vigil near the Saline County Courthouse. They wear T-shirts with photos of the teenagers. Some hold signs that read, Justice for Kevin and Dawn. In the crowd, family and friends, and people who have grown up hearing about the case of the murdered boys. I followed this case from day one in 1987, and when I immediately recognized Kevin, it hit me really hard for someone I knew to be murdered. Uh, you know, I was a 17-year-old girl. Most definitely is something that you'll, you'll never forget, because back then, you know, as a teenager, and a shock like that, that someone your age could actually be murdered. It, it just is something that you never get over. Signs hanging from the courthouse square's gazebo read, gone but not forgotten, with a photo of Kevin Ives posing in a white button-up collared shirt, blue necktie, and a brown sports coat casually thrown over his shoulder. The last thing that we expected when we all went back to school or college or whatever uh, that year uh, was that we'd be burying a couple of our friends. What we didn't realize then, or maybe realize in full, is that there was danger close to home. And the reality we faced 25 years ago was to see that danger claim our friends, Don and Kevin. 33 years later, the medical examiner from Georgia, Dr. Joseph Burton, still takes the case personally. He's hopeful the truth will come to light. Time uh, sometimes is not an enemy. It's, uh, you know, a help. Sooner or later, somebody that knows something is going to slip up and say something that, to the wrong person and it's going to come to 
you know, become public information sooner or later. <laughs> I lost my son when he was 17, so I know what it's like to lose your son for, from, you know, whatever the reason might be. I would tell them that, uh, that they can't let this basically rule their life. They have to go on with their life. If they have other children, they need to take care of them, but uh, not to give up hope that sooner or later, a door will open, a light will come on, and they'll know what happened to their sons. Holy smokes, Jessica, this story really does have everything. We hear from the lieutenant there towards the end that there aren't a lot of new clues coming in, but it sounds like townspeople are still really invested in this story and what happened. Anything new you can you can tell us? Well, last year uh, in January, um, a pretty well-known wrestler um, from the 80s came forward saying that he had witnessed the murders. Um and uh, it's Billy Jack Haynes. I don't know if you're familiar with him well. Uh, I'm not, unfortunately. So basically, he posts this video um, saying that he's, you know, here to come clean and, and say what he knows. He used to be a drug trafficker there in Mina and was a hired hand to basically enforce an unnamed politician slash drug dealer in Arkansas. Um he alleges that he was actually asked by that unnamed politician uh, to kill David Kennedy, who was the son of Robert F. Kennedy. Uh, that was in 1984. So he was really wrapped up in all this drug scene um, and the and those planes that were dropping drugs in Mina. And he took everything he knew. He said he actually witnessed the two teenagers being murdered. Um, by people who were working for that unnamed politician that he's talking about. And so he actually met with Linda Ives a couple years ago and gave her and her private investigator all the names involved in what he's talking about. All right. So wait, we already have like Clinton conspiracy stuff going on in this story. And now you have like a connection to the Kennedy family. According to this former wrestler. And and so we don't really know what's going on with this guy coming forward and saying he witnessed something. We don't know if he actually saw who murdered them. We don't have any confirmation from anyone of an an official capacity um, that what he is claiming is true. No. All right, Jessica, well, we'll bring listeners any updates on this story. uh, If we hear of any in coming weeks, months, years, thanks for bringing us the story of the boys on the tracks. Thanks, Will. And also make sure if anyone has any information to call the Salinas County Sheriff's Department and give them any information you might have. Got it. All right, join us next week for a new case and a new story right here on True Crime Chronicles. True Crime Chronicles is a Vault Studios production. You can tell your friends to listen, subscribe, rate, and review our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and all major listening apps. You can find Vault Studios on Twitter, Instagram, and check out our Facebook group, Gone Cold, where we discuss this and other cases. 